fair warning, this is going to be another one of those episodes where we have to spend most of our time concentrating on events outside of Arizona. That's because the Pimarea Alta, Sonora, New Spain, and really the entire Spanish Empire is about to be turned on its head by events happening back in Europe. Like a dam bursting at the reservoir way upstream, a wave of chaos and change will come barreling down and eventually wash over everything. But quite frankly, Arizona, which at this point is the Santa Cruz and San Pedro River Valleys with some adjoining areas, is like a survivor hugging that one lone rock that sticks above the flood water. Technically, he's not touched by the flood, but certainly he has to deal with the consequences. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 14, Isolated Independence. We left off last week with the Pimaria Alta in places such as Tucson, Tumacacri, and Aravaca beginning to flourish once again. The peace-by-purchase policy had brought some stability to the frontier as the 18th century transitioned into the 19th. But elsewhere, the empire was in great commotion. Part of this commotion was, ironically enough given where Arizona will eventually wind up, due to the American Revolution. Spain joined the conflict in 1779, and aggressive actions and strong defenses would see Spanish forces claiming territory between Pensacola, Florida, and New Orleans, while also protecting cities as far north as St. Louis, Missouri. It should be noted that Spain didn't do this for any great love of the Americans. In one of those technical distinctions that only mean something in diplomatic circles, they were not allies of the rebellious colonist rabble but rather they were allies of the French Bourbons, fighting a much more civilized war against the British. The end of the war would ultimately see them walk away with all of the Florida territory, which included all of the current state of Florida, and the bottom sections of Alabama, Mississippi, and part of Louisiana. Spain could add this to the broader Louisiana territory they took over from France in the 1760s. However, those pesky American kids somehow were granted territory stretching all the way to the Missouri River. Spain was not happy about that, but they were forced to live with it. They had also hoped to regain Gibraltar from the British, which did not wind up happening. But they now controlled a truly continental empire, stretching from the Atlantic coast of Florida all the way to the Pacific coast in California. And now it's time to see exactly how quickly it takes for all that to be ripped away. Perhaps the first nail in the coffin is the death of King Carlos III on December 14, 1788, just under a week before our old friend Ansa passed away. Carlos may have been an absolutist, but he had aimed to be an enlightened one. His reforms were reasonable and pragmatic, and many would outlast Spain's hold on its overseas territories. He had been more than a competent ruler. He had been an active and engaged one, and the empire was better because of it. Of course, if history has one trope it loves going to again and again, it's that of a strong reformer king being followed by a weak-willed successor who just can't keep it together. Thus enter Carlos IV, the man who proves the stereotype. Various sources call him phlegmatic and vacuous, which are not really the descriptors you want applied to you in the history books. Carlos' problem seems to have been a lack of a spine, 
most evident in the fact that he was mostly controlled by his domineering wife, Maria Luisa. We see a lot of this problem in an incident that occurred in 1789 along the Pacific coast. You see, British explorer Captain James Cook, of all people, had found a little spot on Nukta Sound, which sits on the western side of Vancouver Island, that was good for sea otter trapping. Spain was still keen on insisting it owned everything up to Alaska and sent an expedition to officially colonize Nukta Sound, which led to a confrontation between the British and Spanish forces in the summer of 1789. This almost led to an all-out war between the two, which was adverted because of something else that occurred that summer. In France, the people have stormed the Bastille. The French Bourbons were too busy to help their Spanish cousins, so Carlos IV essentially caved. He gave back any British property seized during the incident, and then, throwing out both baby and bathwater, gave the British rights to explore and trap at any place along the coast north of San Francisco. So, yeah, there are no more Spanish claims to Alaska. But things are going to get worse from here. Because in 1792, Maria Luisa strong-armed the king to appoint her 25-year-old lover, Manuel Godoy, as his chief advisor. Godoy is saddled with a lot of the blame over what's about to go down, and most agree that he was the wrong man for the position at the utterly wrong time. Shortly after Godoy wormed his way in, we hit 1793. The French were in the middle of their revolutionary fever, symbolized by them feeding King Louis XVI to Madame la Guillotine. Since killing a king was still unthinkable pretty much everywhere else in Europe, everyone decided this would not stand. So, turning against their usual allies, Godoy threw Spain's lot in with England and others in the War of the First Coalition. But this only caused the armies of the French Republic to invade Spain from the north, which eventually will lead Godoy to sue for peace in 1795. As an inducement for this peace, Spain would also have to fork over Santo Domingo on the island of Hispaniola. The British were not happy about Spain turning on them, so they would actually start a blockade of Spain in 1796 that would last more than a decade. This blockade would also be one of the reasons behind a naval battle in 1805 at a place you might have heard of, Trafalgar. All this trouble would lead Spain to cede territory in the Floridas to the Americans in a bid to at least keep them neutral as Europe fell deeper and deeper into war. But Godoy didn't like his odds when it came to protecting his North American territories from the land-hungry Americans, so in 1800 he struck a deal with France, now led by an obscure Corsican general named Napoleon Bonus something, I'm sure it's not important. The deal aimed to gain the Italian throne of Parma for Queen Maria Luisa's brother, and it cost Spain the entire Louisiana territory. The only stipulation? France could not, could not, could not turn around and sell the territory to anybody else. Of course, that's exactly what France did three years later when it was sold to the Americans in the Louisiana Purchase. Because if history teaches one lesson repeatedly, it's that you cannot trust Napoleon. All of this turmoil is sapping Spain's strength. I'm not sure if you know this or not, but wars are expensive. Plus, a British blockade is interrupting trade and the ability to effectively govern overseas territories. So it's an ailing Spain that moves into the 1800s. It doesn't help that the heir presumptive, 
Ferdinand, decided that he couldn't stand his weak father, manipulative mother, or the inept Godoy. He started corresponding with Napoleon about possibly taking Carlos IV out of the picture. Napoleon, meanwhile, had a ton of troops already in Spain, allowed by Carlos IV to help Napoleon force Portugal to stop supporting the British. Ferdinand attempted a coup against his father in 1807, which ultimately failed. But further revolts by his subjects made Carlos IV abdicate on March 19, 1808, in favor of Ferdinand. Not really happy about this, Carlos also appealed to Napoleon. Emperor Bonaparte was more than happy to help sort out this little drama, and invited Carlos and Ferdinand to meet at the French city of Bayonne to really hash out the best possible solution for the Spanish people. Except, what lesson does history teach us repeatedly? That's right, you cannot trust Napoleon. Once the two were in Bayonne in April of 1808, Napoleon had them seized and declared both of them deposed. In their place, he declared that his brother, Joseph Bonaparte, was now the king of Spain. Now, the political upper-ups accepted Joseph's ascension, but when the people found out, they literally said, No way, Jose, and revolts began popping up everywhere. This event, called the Abdications of Bayonne, is the big one. This justifies spending a good nine minutes talking about the Spanish monarchy in a podcast about Arizona. Because it's here, when Napoleon dethrones Carlos and Ferdinand, that the Spanish Empire is really doomed. As word filters to the new world about this, it will start knocking down the dominoes that leads to independence movements across North and South America. You see, in the wake of the abdications of Bayonne, groups across Spain started gathering to contest the French, ostensibly in the name of Ferdinand. These groups, called juntas, helped lead the hit-and-run style fighting against the occupation. As a historical side note, it's here that this style of attack would acquire the term guerrilla, or guerrilla, being Spanish for little war. Though the Apaches could probably smugly say they've been using the same tactics against occupiers long before it had a cool name. A central junta eventually declared itself in Seville, but across the Atlantic, the decision whether or not to form their own juntas was the major pressing question. This will have its own impact in setting off revolutionary wars in South America, but that's another podcast. Literally, it's another podcast. If you want to know more about it, check out the fifth cycle in Mike Duncan's fantastic Revolutions podcast, which goes over all of this in greater detail and takes you through the independence movement down in South America. But up in New Spain, things took a bit of a twist. You see, some prominent criollos, those of Spanish ancestry but born in the Americas, decided that they wanted to set up their own junta. Ostensibly, they would be holding power for Ferdinand, but really they wanted to use the turmoil to grab some more power for themselves. Into this, they roped the viceroy, who was amenable to the idea. However, the more conservative elite, who were peninsulares, or those actually from Spain, were aghast at the possibility of things taking a liberal turn. They decided that they would swear allegiance to the Central Junta in Seville, also ostensibly in the name of King Ferdinand. And also, they struck first. In a lightning coup, they deposed the Viceroy and declared their allegiance to the King and the Seville Junta. So, that went well. 
The conservatives, in a decisive move, had been able to stamp back the spark of revolution before it became a raging wildfire. Installing a couple weak stand-in successors as viceroy, everything seemed hunky-dory. Then they tapped guy number three to take over the top spot on September 15, 1810. The very next day, the wildfire everyone thought was cold and dead suddenly erupted. North-northwest of Mexico City, in an area called La Bajio, was a town called Dolores. And in this town lived a secular priest named Father Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla. Now, all descriptions of Father Hidalgo include some form of the word radical. He had lost a cushy educator position at the Colegio de San Nicolas Obispo in Morelia, Mexico, partially due to his innovating the curriculum. That doesn't sound too bad to our modern ears, but when you add in his embrace of Enlightenment philosophy, challenge of traditional Catholic dogma such as the virgin birth, denial of the absolute power of popes and kings, and questioning-slash-ignoring celibacy for priests, well, it's a recipe for the Inquisition beating at your door. Which is what happened. The Inquisition didn't find him guilty per se, but he was sent packing to the parish of Dolores. Once there, he turned over the whole religious oversight part of his job to a subordinate and concentrated on business ventures and tending to his liberal views. Because Hidalgo is all about social justice. He was deeply critical of Spanish policies, which he viewed as keeping the rich rich while doing nothing for the average man on the street. He also joined a circle of intellectuals and others who started talking about how someone really should do something about how bad things were getting out there. And, as is usually the case for these things, they decided that, hey, we could do something about how bad it's getting out there. Now, the conservatives in power eventually got wind that someone, somewhere, was talking about doing something. But while investigating, they tipped their hand to the wrong person, and word soon spread that the plot had been discovered. Then Hidalgo, bold, radical Hidalgo, did something, well, bold and radical. On September 16, 1810, he had his church bells rung in the dead of night, I've seen something like 2.30 in the morning, to call everyone in the town together. Once the group had assembled, he gave a fiery speech denouncing bad government and the current exploitative conditions. We don't have an actual transcript of what he said, because, you know, who's taking notes for an impromptu sermon at 2.30 in the morning? But he called for the people to throw off the shackles of the oppressive Spanish, to defend their rights, and to protect Catholicism. He then called for something that would have seemed like a bad joke just a few years earlier. Independence. And now we are off to the races. Because this grito, or cry of Dolores, whipped everyone into a frenzy. Hidalgo soon found himself leading a rapidly growing peasant army marching toward Mexico City. Historian James Officer notes that had it not been for the Presidios, Arizona might not have been drawn into this conflict at all. Hey, remember Arizona, the subject this podcast is supposed to be about? Well, it took nearly 15 minutes, but it finally made an appearance. The intendant governor of Sonora, Alejo Garcia Conde, who incidentally also was the person last time who granted the Odom petitioners land rights south of Tubac, wanted to make sure a similar rebellion would not get anywhere close to his jurisdiction. 
so he tapped Lieutenant Colonel Pedro Sebastián de Villa Excusa to lead a force south. Villa Excusa might sound familiar, as he was the original commander of the Pima contingent manning the old Presidio at Tubac. Leading a small army consisting of his forces from the Presidio of Buenaventura, but also certainly with soldiers from other posts, including Tucson, Villa Excusa headed toward the town of El Rosario. With Hidalgo's army growing and steamrolling obstacles on its path toward Mexico City, another revolutionary army was heading north from Guadalajara. Now, Villa Excusa is going to be defeated in December 1810, but will regroup and join with Garcia Conde, and together they will defeat the rebels in February 1811. In the meantime, Hidalgo's steamroller had, well, ran out of steam. By sheer force of numbers, his ragtag army had swelled past 80,000. They had overran several settlements and were taking whatever they wanted. On October 30, 1810, at Monte de las Cruces, this peasant rabble had overwhelmed the royalist forces sent against them, despite taking heavy losses. Down in Mexico City, the viceroy was preparing to defend the capital. But for reasons that are still not well understood, Hidalgo pulled up short and ordered the army to retreat toward Guadalajara. Much like your quarterback failing to cross the line on fourth and goal, this move stopped whatever inertia Hidalgo's push down the fill had. The army began hemorrhaging people while the royalist forces began regrouping. In January 1811, the two armies met again at the Caladrone Bridge outside of Guadalajara, where the royalists crushed the untrained peasants. Hidalgo is going to make it out of this, though removed from any sort of military command. He and others decided that maybe the best course of action was to flee north, hoping to find safety and support for their cause in the U.S. They will never make it there. The group was captured in March 1811. Most of the other revolutionary leaders were tried and found guilty and executed. Hidalgo was turned over to the Bishop of Durango, who had him defrocked. He then was tried by military tribunal, who, shocker, found him guilty and ordered his execution. I've seen both July 30th and July 31st, 1811, as the date that the bold, radical Father Hidalgo was executed. He was shot, and like other rebel leaders, decapitated. As a side note, a member of the tribunal that condemned Hidalgo was the commander of the military forces of Chihuahua City, Captain Simon Elias Gonzalez, who had previously served at both Tubac and Tucson. Hidalgo's revolt would not die there with him, as others picked up the cause and would carry the war south, far away from Arizona. We'll eventually circle back around with what's happening on the southern end of Mexico because, spoiler alert, independence is eventually coming. But for now, we need to look at conditions happening on the northern fringes during the decade it took for that to happen. While troops from Tubac and Tucson will continue to participate in the various battles down south, for the most part, the Pimaria Alta was too distant from the main action to see any sort of fighting or violence. For the most part, life went on. We see a number of commanders rotating through Tubac and Tucson between 1805 and when Mexico gained its independence in 1821. These top military officers formed the elite class of the frontier, often marrying among each other and circling around positions. It's the non-commissioned men and their families who would stay and actually settle near the Presidio. And, shall we call it 
Interesting? Side effect of the war and having soldiers called south is that the record shows a trend of colleagues using the absence of their fighting men to carry on affairs with their wives. It's a serious thing. An officer gives several counts of the headache all this infidelity gave to local priests. During this time, the twin boogeymen of the frontier, Apaches and diseases, kept popping up just to make sure no one really felt safe. Though nothing compared to the attacks that happened just 30 years earlier, Apache raids continued. The only good note is that the church rolls from the era recorded no deaths due to the Apaches. The piece can also be seen in a Pinal Apache band petitioning in 1819 to settle near Tubac. The disease, on the other hand, was still doing a grisly work. In the last two months of 1816, the priest at Tumacocri buried 25 natives, 15 of them children. An estimate for Tumacocri, San Javier del Bac, and Tucson is that the native population declined by over 200 between 1806 and 1818. It's during this time that we also see continued settlement pushing past the confines of the Santa Cruz River Valley. We talked about this last week, but we are seeing people ranching in the San Pedro and San Rafael Valleys and living in Calabasas and Aravaca. In fact, the commander of the Tucson garrison also found the food supply to his Presidio supplemented by fields being worked by peaceful Apaches in the San Pedro floodplain. Interestingly enough, we also have a gold mining operation now underway near Guevavi by 1814 and another mine in the Santa Ritas. Now, the toll of the war for independence is eventually going to be felt throughout the Pimaria Alta, as supply shortages and a drain on manpower starts dismantling the fragile stability everyone was enjoying. We'll dive a lot more in-depth into that next week, but for now, everything is sort of coasting along with the occasional troubling news from the South. Speaking of, we need to bring events in both Spain and Mexico to their end. Let's start with Spain because, once again, events there will cause a major course change in Mexico. So, with Ferdinand held in France, a not-much-used governing body called the Cortes had set up shop in Cadiz. Now manned by young liberals schooled in Enlightenment ideals, this body passed a new constitution in 1812 to govern the nation until the French were evicted and Ferdinand restored. This constitution was incredibly liberal, one historian called it the most radical of all the constitutional monarchies of Europe. Among its many provisions, it put checks on the king's power, declared that sovereignty came from the people, and also in an overdue move, it finally outlawed the Inquisition. Importantly, this constitution also gave full citizenship to everyone in Spanish dominions, including Amerindians. There were some exceptions. I mean, we can't let blacks and women vote. That would just be silly. But overall, this was momentous. As part of this, settlements in the New World were granted something they had never experienced before. Self-government. In what must have seemed positively mind-blowing to those who had known nothing but 300 years of royal absolutism, the Constitution of 1812 called for the formation of new, get this, elected governing bodies. At the municipal level, there would be town councils called ayuntamientos, and at the provincial level, there were bodies called deputaciones. While we still have several more twists and turns, even during the revolutionary years, these changes started to be implemented in Mexico. The deputaciones will never really get off the ground, 
but if they had, those frontier interior provinces would have been served by one. But the ayuntamientos, the town councils, will start cropping up. Though both Tucson and Tubac qualified to be big enough to have their own ayuntamientos, and moves seem to have been made to forming them in 1813, self-government would not truly come until after independence. Now, the Constitution of 1812 was written while the majority of the Spanish Peninsula was under French occupation, which those guerrilla fighters were working so hard against. But then Napoleon had to go and invade Russia, and I'm going to guess we all know how well that turned out. With France now on the retreat, and soldiers needed to shore up the emperor's flanks elsewhere in Europe, a combined British, Portuguese, and Spanish attack was able to drive the French out in 1813. This turn of events was coupled with the huge news that in 1814, Ferdinand was being released from captivity by Napoleon and allowed to once again take his throne. Technically, Ferdinand was supposed to become king and then join in an alliance with Napoleon against the British, but that's not really going to happen. So, this is good news, right? I mean, everyone has been saying they were just ruling in Ferdinand's name, so that means things can get back to normal now. Yeah, not so much. Because when Ferdinand left his kingdom, it had been an absolute monarchy. Upon his return, he took one look at the Constitution of 1812 and declared it null and void. Eventually, his attempts to push a country that had been drifting towards democracy back toward absolutism will result in a revolt that will force Ferdinand to restore the Constitution of 1812. But for now, he found himself king again, and with the French gone, he could really concentrate on shutting down all these rebellions across the Atlantic. Alright, so back to the New World. Hidalgo's banner continued to be carried by those revolutionary leaders who hadn't been carted off to their execution. They were also joined in the South by a fellow secular priest and old pupil of Hidalgo's, José María Morelos. For the next several years, Morelos is going to help lead the rebel forces to some pretty impressive victories. In 1813, he will also convene a congress at the town of Chilpancingo and present them with a document called The Sentiments of the Nation. In this, Morelos declares flat out that America is now independent from Spain. It also makes several other declarations, such as the supremacy of the Catholic faith, the abolishment of distinctions based on race, an end to slavery, and equality before the law. All good stuff here, but most of this will hit a wall when a royalist force managed to capture and kill Morelos in 1815. After that, the baton is picked up by Vicente Guerrero. However, with Ferdinand able to spend more time and manpower on stamping out these rebellions, Guerrero and a dwindling group of rebels were forced to the fringes. Guerrero was now the one resorting to guerrilla attacks to keep the flame of liberty alive. His task was not helped any by the appointment of a new viceroy for New Spain. This viceroy decided that he needed more carrots and less sticks to bring everyone in line. So he started offering blanket amnesty for any rebels who would surrender. Those who didn't and were captured would no longer be summarily executed. See, King Ferdinand is back, and we are all one big happy empire again, so why can't we all just get along? And really, this tactic worked. With Ferdinand on the throne, and all the great firebrands who had launched the revolution, except for Guerrero, now captured or dead, Spain's putting an end to all these uprisings in the New World seemed inevitable. This is the period, 
1817 to 1819, that we find the government telling commanders in the Pima Rea Alta that, oh yeah, the rebellion is totally dead, or there might be just a few more embers left to be stomped out. In fact, in 1819, the Viceroy of New Spain wrote the king to say that no new forces were needed to bring down those few souls who still resisted. The only thing undercutting this message was the fact that a full third of the Tubac garrison was still on detached duty fighting insurgents in Sonora, Sinaloa for double pay. But a funny thing happened on the way to victory. In 1820, news came across the ocean of another great political shift in Spain. Remember that revolt against Ferdinand I mentioned just a few minutes ago? Well, here we are. The king had managed to make himself unpopular in Spain as he ignored not only the constitution of 1812, which was too liberal for a lot of taste anyway, but any type of reforms. His father, grandfather, great-grandfather, yada yada yada, had all been absolute monarchs, and that was what he was going to be too. It didn't matter that everyone could see that things had changed since the time of Ferdinand's father and grandfather, and that some reforms were not only welcome, but necessary. And when it came to the Americas, it was time to use overwhelming force to finally bring all those new world rebels to heel. Ferdinand had rejected recommendations from his own ministry to bring the rebels back into the fold through compromise and relaxing, just a bit, his absolutism, and even ordered the ministers who had supported the idea to resign. In early 1820, Soldiers who had been gathered to sail for the New World decided to mutiny for their own particular reasons. Ominously, though, similar mutinies erupted across Spain. Before the king knew it, soldiers and civilians alike were now clamoring for the restoration of the Constitution of 1812. In the face of Ferdinand's stubborn refusal to give up one iota of his power, a liberal constitution didn't seem too bad. With no choices left to him, Ferdinand reluctantly announced that he was now accepting the Constitution of 1812. Well, back in New Spain, this news went over like a lead balloon. You may remember that it was the conservative classes who had put down the initial thoughts of greater autonomy for the Viceroyalty of New Spain in order to keep things from taking, well, a liberal turn. But now, those same conservative nobles, high-ranking soldiers, landowners, and church officials saw with horror the king adopting one of the most liberal constitutions in all of Europe. So at this point, independence doesn't sound like such a crazy thing. In fact, if those darn liberals have taken over Spain, then independence might be just what the conservatives needed to preserve their status quo. But while conservatives everywhere were starting to rethink that whole allegiance to the king thing, the viceroy was still very much in Ferdinand's pocket. And that brings us to Agustin de Iturbide. Iturbide had been in the war since the very beginning. He was a conservative criollo who believed in the status quo. As an army officer, he had spent the last decade running around and fighting rebels, including Morelos. Dedicated, capable, and tenacious, he had risen through the ranks, but had hit some glass ceilings under the current leadership. So, when the Viceroy sent Iturbide to put the final kibosh on Guerrero's forces, the officers started having more independent ideas. That's why Iturbide, a staunch royalist officer, offered an olive branch to rebel guerrilla fighter Guerrero. 
The two joined their interests, and on February 24, 1821, they issued what is known as the Plan de Iguala. This document laid out their aims and had three basic tenets known as the Three Guarantees. First, the continued supremacy of the Catholic Church. Second, New Spain would become independent of Spain. Third, everyone, no matter what racial background, were equal. Most everyone could get behind these three guarantees, and soon Iturbide and Guerrero had an army ready to finally, after more than a decade of fighting, take Mexico City. In the interim, the viceroy, who was still staunchly loyal to Ferdinand, had been replaced. The poor soul who stepped into his shoes took one look around and did not like his odds. This guy, who had more sense than most, immediately sent feelers to Iturbide to negotiate to bring things to a peaceful end. And by peaceful end, I mean, let New Spain become independent. Word of Iturbide and Guerrero declaring independence for this new thing now being called Mexico made its way north up the usual slow routes. Garcia Conde, who in the intervening decade had moved from being governor of Sonora, Sinaloa, to being commandant general for the interior provinces, swore allegiance to the Plan of Iguala on August 24, 1821, and urged everyone under him to do likewise. On September 3rd, Lieutenant Colonel Manuel Ignacio Arvizu also agreed to the Plan of Iguala. Arvizu had fought with Garcia Conde against rebels at the start of the insurgency, and at this point was either in charge of the Presidio at Tucson or had recently relinquished the post. As a funny anecdote to all of this, the civilian leaders gathered together on September 6th to decide how to respond, unaware of what the military arm was already doing. These leaders all decided to back Iturbide and Guerrero, except for the governor of Sonora, Sinaloa, Antonio Cordero. Shocked by this treasonous decision, Cordero fled to inform Garcia Conde, only to learn that the Commandant General had accepted the change two weeks beforehand. Independence was given an exclamation point on September 21, 1821, when Iturbide and Guerrero swept into Mexico City, overcoming the last vestiges of resistance. Unfortunately, we know almost nothing about the reaction of frontier settlers to news coming north that Spain had been defeated, and they were all citizens of something new. The military officials of Texas, New Mexico, and California themselves don't seem to have been particularly willing, and only submitted after Spanish power collapsed and their superiors ordered them to. Everyone else seems to have accepted the change with various levels of ambivalence. The majority of my sources reference an example from California, so I might as well throw that in here as well. At Monterey on April 11, 1822, the Spanish flag was lowered for the last time. This was done in complete silence, even after the white-haired, toothless governor caught the flag in his arms to keep it from touching the ground. He then is recorded to have looked at officials for the new government and said, quote, They do not cheer because they are unused to independence. End quote. We're going to leave it here for this week, as everyone suddenly realizes that independence, that crazy fevered dream of the past 11 years, has now become reality. 
There will be no episode next week as I will be traveling and, ironically enough, using it as an excuse to get ahead on writing future episodes. But join me in two weeks as we move into Arizona under Mexican rule and watch as the forces that had established peace across the empire, and especially in the Pimaria Alta, topple one by one. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.